Well, we're uh, continuing our journey through the books of Moses and uh, the next few weeks will be through the book of Numbers. Before we get into uh, this morning's passage, just uh, a brief introduction to the book of Numbers. Um, As Landon correctly told us this morning, the book of Numbers is called Numbers because the first four chapters record a census of Israel and so it contains lots of numbers and those who translated the Old Testament into Greek um, called it numbers because of the abundance of numbers. However the original Hebrew name given to this book is taken from the fifth word uh, in the Hebrew, not in the English, the fifth word in the book which is uh, a word which means in the wilderness. And this name really captures much better the, uh, the theme of this book because it is the account of uh, Israel's 40 years of travelling in the wilderness between leaving Mount Sinai and arriving uh, at the boundary of the promised land uh, ready to enter it. Now if you read the book you'll see that it alternates between narrative sections and law sections. So between what the law required of them as his covenant people in the parts that are law and how they actually obeyed or disobeyed it. And the emphasis in those narrative sections is on their disobedience because there wasn't a lot of obedience. Now Numbers is structured like we saw with Leviticus, it's structured as a chiasm in which the central focus is in the middle of the book. It's got three main sections. The first section, the first ten chapters, is Israel camped still at Mount Sinai before they head out to the, on their journey and it begins with that census, counting of the people. And then the third section, chapters 25 to 36, is at the end of their 40 years of wandering. They're camped at the edge of the promised land and it also begins with a census, but it's a census of the new generation, those who were born in the wilderness over those 40 years. The middle section, which is what we're really going to be focusing on in this series, tells of their journey. And in this section, there are seven accounts where the people complain or rebel. The fourth of these seven, which is uh, central, um, oh, there's the um, census taking place in chapter 26. Um, The fourth of these accounts of their complaining, so that's central to this middle section, therefore central to the whole book, is the story that we'll look at next week. The story when the spies were sent into the land, they came back with a frightening report and the people were faithless and they refused to enter the land. So that's the the, the central theme and the key point of Numbers. When they were face to face with the fulfilment of God's promise to them to give them the land, they turn away and they refuse to have faith. They do all that they can to try and annul God's plan. But the other great theme of Numbers 
in stark contrast to that is that the Lord remains faithful to his people and to his promise. In the book of Hebrews, it highlights uh, that the people's main problem was a lack of faith. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, referring to this period of time. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief, their lack of faith. Now there's a stark contrast between the first section of Numbers 1 to 10 and the second section which we're starting this morning. In the first section it describes the Israelites doing exactly as the Lord required. They prepare their armies, they arrange the camp in the the required layout, they set aside the priests and the Levites to be serving in the tabernacle, they make sure that they're following the uh, special laws that were particularly designed to make sure they remained consecrated people. And they hear the wonderful words of the ironic blessing. Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So there's that promise they're hearing of the Lord's blessing. They give generously to the tabernacle and those who serve in it. Then they celebrate the Passover just as as they've been commanded in the first month of the second year since they came out of Egypt. So it's been a whole year that they've been camped at Mount Sinai. Now they're they're ready to go forward to the Promised Land which was only three days' journey away. The end of chapter 10 paints a really positive picture then. The cloud representing the presence of the Lord lifts from the tabernacle as a sign that it's time to get moving with the Lord leading us. The tabernacle is taken down, ready to be transported and they set out with the Ark of the Covenant ahead of them and the cloud of the Lord's presence over them. As they head out, there are these two anthems that uh, they hear, that are declared uh, every morning. Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you, which we heard in Psalm 68 this morning. And then, return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel when they um, went to bed at night, when they uh, set up camp. So this is a very positive, a very triumphant start. Ten whole chapters of Israel obeying the Lord, trusting him to defend 
them against their enemies as they travelled and trusting him to remain with them whenever they camped. That's why chapter 11 then, such a big slap in the face. We go from the heights of the people setting out into this wonderful new destiny they have, their new identity as the Lord's covenant people, to, and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. This sets the template for these seven cycles of disobedience in numbers. The people are unhappy with their situation, they complain, the Lord sends judgment and in every occasion we see Moses has a conversation with the Lord about the judgment. Now five times out of the seven he's interceding for them but on two occasions he himself complains. He shows himself to be just as sinful and fallible as the people. Verses 4 to 9, the people complain again, as we saw, and they're complaining about the manna and they're desiring meat to eat. And then verses 10 to 15, Moses himself descends into a self-centred, self-pitying complaint. Notice how every sentence is about him. Why have I not found favour? You lay the burden on me. Did I conceive? Did I give birth? That you should say to me, where am I to get meat? They weep before me. I am not able The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me, that I may not see my wretchedness. See, Moses is complaining about the people, but he's really showing himself to be just like them. He's really blaming the Lord for what's happening. Now, Moses' sinfulness... uh, is portrayed here and in other places through this story. Not to be a lesson for us. The New Testament doesn't actually tell us to look to Moses as an example of what we should or shouldn't be like. Uh, The New Testament tells us to look at the Israelites. They're example enough for us. Moses' ongoing failure, his sinfulness, as shown in this complaint, is designed to show us that while in many regards he is God's chosen prophet, called and anointed to lead his people out of slavery, he's only a shadow of what is to come. By his failures, he points us to Christ. By contrast, Christ never complained. He never begrudged his father for the mission that had been given even when he was faced with the foolishness and the stubbornness of his disciples, even when he was faced with the, the opposition of the Jews who eventually crucified him, he never once complained. So the rest of this chapter then is the Lord's response. And uh, what we'll see is that there's actually a twofold response. 
And in it, he, he sets before them the two options that they have. They're the two ways that we've actually recently seen in the book of Galatians. The way of the spirit and faith or the way of the flesh and works. The first way, the way of spirit and faith, requires a response from the Lord according to grace. The way of the second way, the way of the flesh and of works, well that requires a response according to the law. So firstly, we see the way of the spirit. Moses is told to gather 70 elders. Now that should remind us, it's supposed to remind us of Exodus chapter 24 when Moses selected 70 elders who went up on the mountain with Moses and with Aaron and they saw the Lord and they ate and drank with him in in a covenant sealing meal. So these These are the men who have seen and known the Lord. They know his grace. They know that he is the one who atones for their sin. He is the one who makes them acceptable to stand before him. So he is to select these 70 men and the Lord will come down and will talk with them. Just as he did on Mount Sinai. But now that they've left Sinai... The mountain has been replaced with the tabernacle as the location of his presence. And we saw that also in Psalm 68. But then something unprecedented. The spirit will be given not just to the one man, Moses, as has been from up to this point, but to all of the elders. So at Sinai they saw the Lord... But now they're empowered to speak his word as they are all made prophets. So then in verse 25, the Lord does what he promised. He comes down in the cloud and he speaks. The spirit empowers all the elders and they begin to prophesy. And then even these two men who hadn't come to the tabernacle, they were prophesying. So prophecy, true prophecy by the Spirit is not restricted to the location of the tabernacle. What's more important is not the location but the fact that the Lord had come down and was speaking by his Spirit. And then in verse 26, Moses expresses a longing for what really would be the ultimate solution to the people's lack of faith. If all the people were prophets, if all the people were filled with the Spirit, in other words, if all the people could hear the Lord speak and be able to speak his word, they would all know what Moses and the elders saw on the top of Sinai. They too would know that fellowship of eating and drinking with the Lord. But remember that at the end of verse 25, They did not continue doing it. This is just a temporary glimpse for Moses into something that was yet to come. 
in the future. And we'll get back to that shortly. So that's the way of the Spirit and the Word. The second way is the way of the flesh. So the people are told to consecrate themselves. Again, they're supposed to remember what happened back at Sinai. That's the same call that they were given when they first arrived at Sinai as they prepared themselves for the Lord's descent upon the mountain. And at that time they declared, um, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. They were essentially, at Sinai, they were committing themselves to this covenant that the Lord was giving them. That included blessings for their obedience and curses for their disobedience. So you see what's happening here with these 70 elders around the tabernacle and the people being told to get ready for the Lord's descent. They're being reminded, you've entered into a covenant with the Lord and you've so quickly broken it. So the Lord's simply being faithful to his side of the covenant. They've disobeyed and so now he's going to judge them. And the way he's going to judge them is he's going to give them what they want. What if we always got what we demanded from the Lord? Think of a moment, for a moment, of all the times that you've complained to him. And don't say you haven't because we all have at some point complain to the Lord about our situation. When we've demanded that he fix our problems the way we want it to be fixed. And now think of how he didn't give in to your demands but he instead made you wait patiently, made you endure more suffering, made you wallow a bit longer in your self-pity so that you'd learn to trust him and so that you'd learn to accept that his solution would be very different to yours. Well, those times were a demonstration of the Father's goodness and mercy to you in that he didn't give in to your sinful, selfish demands and just give you what you wanted like a weak parent who's always giving in to their spoiled child. But think of another scenario. Think of a time when he allowed you to get what you demanded, what you wanted. When he let you go down the route that you considered best, but then it turned out to be very clearly the wrong, the worst option, which brought more pain and more grief. And I hope that when in that place... You came to your senses, like the prodigal son sitting in the mud in the pigsty. And you realised that you had no one else to blame for your situation but yourself. And returning now to the arms of the Father is the only option in front of you. Well, that too was the work of the Father, disciplining you, making you experience firsthand the consequences of living by the flesh instead of walking by the Spirit. 
Well, that second scenario is what the Lord's doing here. He's showing them that while he's taken his people out of Egypt, it's going to take a little bit more to get Egypt out of the people. The people's memories of Egypt were tainted. They remembered the good food that they ate. But they'd already forgotten the heavy burden of slavery. They'd already forgotten the slaughter of their children that had caused them to cry out to the Lord for deliverance. How quickly we forget the good things that God has done for us. Instead, we pine after the trivial pleasures of our past. So their memory was twisted and they complained about the manna. This manna which was not only sufficient for their needs, but it was actually good to eat. It tasted like coriander, it tasted like cakes baked with oil. It makes me think of a nice panini bread roll, you know, beautiful bread. But like I said to the children, I don't know if I could eat it every meal of every day. So it was good to eat, it never failed, God provided it daily and it was first given to them uh, in Exodus 16 when they were hungry as they'd just come out of Egypt and its purpose was testing them to see whether they would walk in God's law. Uh, If you remember the story, they were told you can only collect it for six days and on the Sabbath you're not allowed to collect it because the Lord will provide on the sixth day enough to cover the sixth and the seventh day. So it was a test. Would they trust the Lord to provide even when they hadn't gathered? Would they pray, give us today our daily bread? But rather than see and be thankful for this everyday, ordinary provision and goodness of God in his day-to-day gifts, we want something more, don't we? We look enviously at people who seem to have better stuff than us and we want it. We demand the gourmet tasty food when we feel that the plain but nutritious bread from God has just got a bit boring. The Lord never intended his people to be fully satisfied with the manna. It wasn't designed to fully satisfy them, but it wasn't so that they would be caused to desire different or nicer food. It was so that they would desire the real food. Deuteronomy 8.3, he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, which is why it was called, what is it? That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So the lesson of the manna was was actually twofold. Firstly, we should learn to see that what we have, everything we have from creation is a gift from the Father and it's good, it's sufficient, it's appropriate for where and what and who we are right now. But secondly, we shouldn't allow the limitation of what we have to foster a desire for riches that can only be found in the Lord. Jesus said, 
I am the bread that comes down from heaven. In other words, feed on me because I don't just give life here and now, I will raise you up and I will give you eternal life. So the Lord is saying to the Israelites here, if you say that what I've given you isn't good enough and you need something better, then I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you in abundance so that you can see the foolishness and the sinfulness of your demands. God's judgement often comes in the form of handing us over to our sinful desires. Romans 1 tells us that all of us have desired the creation instead of the creator. So, he handed us over to what we desired, allowed allowed it to run its full course through to the ultimate expression of sexual immorality. And this sin is mentioned almost as a pinnacle of human sinfulness because it's, it's a sin that is entirely driven by the desire for the fulfilment of the flesh. Romans then goes on to show that God does this so that in the depths of emptiness and darkness we will more clearly see the light of his word of the gospel when it comes to us. Uh, Paul's really here describing Adam and Eve, isn't he? who represent all of us. They took the fruit. They presumed they could be self-sufficient and get what they needed purely from the creation. And God handed them over to the consequences of that. They had to then live in a world where they were no longer ruling over creation, but they became slaves to the powers and the, the dangers and the futility of a world under a curse. A world in which God seems absent But that's exactly what they demanded. We we don't want God, we want to do it ourselves. Think of Israel turning to the gods of the nations that were around them. What did God do? He gave them what they demanded. He allowed them to be conquered by the people who worship these other gods, as if to say, are you going to worship the gods? Then see what it's like to live under their power. That's so they would cry out to the Lord and then he sent judges to deliver them. Think of Israel demanding a king so that they could be like the nations around them. So God gave them what they demanded. He gave them Saul, a king who was like the king of the nations. So they would desire a king of God's own choosing, a king after God's own heart. That's the recurring cycle all the way through Israel's history. And it's also the way in which he continues to exercise his fatherly discipline for his children, whom he loves and whom he's bringing to maturity. So we shouldn't be surprised when we see that cycle happening in our lives. It's all about him making us more and more like Jesus and forcing us to trust in him and not in ourselves. So in their selfish, sinful desires, the people demand meat and so God gives them meat in abundance. They remembered the abundance of the fish in the rivers of Egypt, but this is even better. They can just catch the birds with their bare hands. 
But then, what happens next? The Great Plague. He's saying, you want to go back to Egypt, do you? You want to go back to the abundance of food that you had in Egypt? Well, remember what was also in Egypt, an abundance of plagues. When they were in Egypt, they were spared from the plagues. But if they want to go back, whether physically or in their hearts, they shouldn't presume that they're going to be spared from his judgement. Going back would be to reject everything that the Lord had done for them. It would make them no better off than an Egyptian. And this lesson is then highlighted in the name that's given to that place. Kibroth Hatava, which means graves of craving. So walk according to the flesh, desiring to be fulfilled as you consume whatever you can get without regard for your creator. In the end, it will be you who is consumed by the grave. The creation from which you think you can get all of your sufficiency will eventually swallow you up. Last week uh, we heard from Proverbs 30, uh, 15 to 16, which sums this up really poetically. The leech has two daughters, give and give. Three things are never satisfied, four never say enough. Sheol, the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water and the fire that never says enough. Now Sheol there, that's the place of the dead. It's the grave. No matter how much the grave is fed with the bodies of the dead, it never reaches a point where it says, I'm full now, no one else needs to die. And it's always one-way traffic. Everything keeps going in, but nothing ever comes out. Sheol is the end of anyone who says the same. What I have, even from the hand of God, isn't enough. I want more than what he's given. And I want it to be better than what he's given. So that's the way of the flesh. Live the life of a consumer and in the end you will be consumed. But let's revisit the alternative way that the Lord presented to them before the judgement. This is the way of the Spirit and the Word. The way of hearing the Lord speak by faith in the power and freedom of the Holy Spirit. Now I said that the fact that these 70 elders received the Spirit and prophesied only in a temporary way was appointed to the future day when what was only temporary and partial would become permanent and full. And Moses had a glimpse into the future. He said, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them, but he didn't just get a glimpse into the future. He got a glimpse of the Lord's heart. He was echoing in his words the desire and the plan of the Lord from the very beginning to bring to fulfilment what was foreshadowed by these 70 elders. From Joel chapter 2, it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. That's the fulfilment of the longing of Moses' heart, which was a reflection of God's heart. This fulfilment will begin with an action of judgment, but an act of judgment that will also be an act of redemption. Jesus, Jesus, the true and better Moses, goes in willing, uncomplaining obedience to the cross. And there he receives the outworking, not of our own actions, but not of his own actions, but of ours. We've demanded a life of no God, of no blessing, no presence of God and that's what we see at the cross. God gives Jesus what we've demanded for ourselves and then now risen at the, and seated at the right hand of the Father, as Peter said in, on the day of Pentecost, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. You see the parallel there with Numbers 11. Jesus stands in the true tabernacle, which is the actual presence of the Father, the Father's right hand. And as the exalted, anointed, spirit-filled Son, he's taken of the spirit that he's received from the Father and he's given him to us. He's shared his anointing with us so that we might participate in his prophetic ministry of hearing and speaking the word of the Father so that we might no longer walk according to the way of the flesh but according to the Spirit. So whenever the Father lays his hand of discipline on us sometimes that hand might seem quite heavy, maybe feels too heavy for us to bear. That's where he's always pointing us to the way of faith and grace and the work of the Spirit and his word. The response he requires in those times isn't, well, I'll try harder next time or I promise I'll never do that again because that's foolishness. We will never have the strength in and of ourselves to do better. And as long as we live, we'll find ourselves repeating those same old sins over and over again. No, the required response is to simply come to him. Come to him in repentance and simple, humble faith, trusting in his mercies that have been fleshed out in the cross of Christ, relying not on ourselves but on the power of the Holy Spirit to live a life that pleases him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this account of those who came before us and we look to them uh, and we ask, Father, that by your spirit you will enable us to uh, learn from them, learn not to uh, follow the way of the flesh, not to follow the way of demanding uh, that you do things our way, but that we might walk in the way of the Spirit, the way of faith, trusting not in ourselves or in anything else in this creation, 
uh, but in your Son alone. He is our life, not just in this world, but he gives us eternal life. So Father, we ask that we might all have that gift of faith to believe and to trust uh, and to walk in his way. Amen. Let's stand now and sing our final hymn uh, in keeping with the theme of what we've been going through this service. Uh, We fight the good fight, uh, not in our own strength, uh, but because we are in Christ and Christ is in us. Let's stand and sing.